0: Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusson from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yay! We're back! Hey!
1: What's good, family? What's good? We are back at home. Yes, we are. We weren't at home last week. I completely forgot.
0: Yes. We were in Elisa Childers' basement.
1: That's true. Living <laughs> large in our studio. Yes.
0: Welcome to All right. the Things. Yes, I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager. And this is a show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life.
1: Awesome. And helping us out on the show tonight is the one and only Bob the Button Pusher,
0: Bontrager. Yes, there he is. Our awesome. fearless leader. There's somebody lurking behind you on the board there. Oh, Uh
1: and helping us out in our chat rooms, we have Emily Bontrager and, and Alicia Moss. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much.
0: Glad to see Candy is checking in with us and Kathy and yes. Al- you think that's Alisa? You Where? That- Alisa H, or you think it's Alyssa?
1: I don't see it.
0: Right under Alicia Moss.
1: Oh, Alyssa. All right, I say Alyssa. I I believe it's Alyssa Huston. Okay, all right. If I catch your name wrong, I'm so sorry. Don't (laughs) judge me. All right, let's jump in. How are you doing?
0: Well, you know, we're just skipping all the announcements. That's okay. We'll come back
1: to them. Yeah, we are. We're going to skip right (laughs) over the announcements. Why? Because I'm running the show today, I guess. I'm just going to go
0: ahead and put that out there. How you doing? I'm good. I'm just confused. We're skipping all the cue sheets, but that's okay. Yeah, we'll come Um, back. You know, I'm okay. You just... Being my low-key self. Yep, just being your low-key self.
1: Now, if you haven't heard, Krista has a big announcement. And that's why we are going to start our show with the joy of this announcement. The big announcement. The big announcement. If I had a drum, I'd be like...
0: (laughs) Okay, deep breaths. Deep breath." All right. The big announcement is that I am transitioning from my job to into ministry full-time to be with you at the Center for Biblical Unity. And you look trepidatious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you sure you coming? Yeah, no, I'm coming. <laughs> okay, I'm, make coming. Sure. I'm totally committed now. <laughs> but yeah, no, just, um, just going through the whole life transition. The girls have graduated, you know, it's just new season of life. Empty Nest and...
1: It's not Empty Nest. I'm still here, girl. I'm no games. <laughs> this, I know you and Bob wish, but I'm still here.
0: But joining you and just seeing what trouble we can get into together.
1: Oh, the world is our oyster. There is so much trouble. Money is very, very excited. I can't wait for the trouble. You guys, Krista will be joining us full-time at the Center for Biblical Unity beginning July 1st?
0: No. J- um, June 23rd? June 23rd.
1: And we are, we, uh, me, (laughs) because I'm the only paid staff right now. I am so excited to have you. And the work that you are, the work that she's already doing is phenomenal. All of the education components that you see come right from Krista. I know many people will see like a slide on institutional racism. They're like, Monique, you're so smart. How can you do that? No, it's not me. <laughs> but I do take that credit. Don't don't trip. It is Krista. And so she's going to head up all of our education um, everything. Everything that comes out educationally, academically. She's going to make sure that we are integrous in that. And... Um, Yeah, and and it's doing – it has already been doing for a year an amazing job and is now going to come over officially and, you know – much of, of of her ability to come over is because of you. It's because of your support. And so if you are a monthly supporter, thank you so much. If you've ever given to us um, at some point in our year history, thank you so much because you are making it possible for us to continue to go out and spread the good news of truth and stand against every wind of doctrine that would come to seek to blow over and trample over the people of God.
0: Really standing for God's vision for justice yes. and racial unity and um, trying to advocate and make the positive case for what the Bible has to say about these themes. Yes. And so I'm excited. I might, I might not look excited. This is actually really my excited This is face. her excited face folks.
1: <laughs> this is, this, this is what you get.
0: Yeah. So no, I'm very honored. And, you know, as we look to the future, um, if I have about, you know, the, this is a big step of faith. Let's put it that way. It is. So, you know, just looking forward to seeing how the Lord will continue to provide and um, get us out there. Cause I have more flexibility now to go out and speak mm-hmm. and travel. So if people want to get me or you or both of us to come uh, contact us and, and let us know. Yeah. So, So yay. Yay. Thanks for for, for the
1: step of faith and obedience. I am so excited. Okay, now we can return to our regular scheduled programming.
0: So we want to encourage you to share the show, support the show. A great way to do that that everybody can do is hit that thumbs up button. uh, Hit the like button if you're on Facebook because that helps uh, force the bots to push us out and let people know that we exist.
1: So I went on Facebook Two days ago, not Facebook. I went on YouTube two days ago, and I was unsubscribed from the Center for Biblical Unity <laughs> YouTube channel. I don't know how that how that even works. you
0: were unsubscribed from your own channel. Was,
1: I was so unsubscribed from all of them, so it was from Center for Biblical Unity and from all the things. And I did not understand how that could even happen. But the bots are real people; they coming for you.
0: So even if you think you you have subscribed in the past, go check.
1: Go check. Because
0: sometimes Face or YouTube likes to make up your mind for you. Yes. And also share the show. Hit that share button. Share it with a friend um, and let them know about it. Another great way to support the ministry is through our family clothing. Yes. Family 210. Go to family210.com. We have lots of designs. This is one of our latest designs. This was one I made. Created a rain based on Genesis 1 and revelation 22 so awesome awesome go get your shirt get your swag we're both we both
1: we both go, have on our center for biblical unity shirt we uh, uh dressed sorry. like
0: twins today we did i didn't know that that's what we were doing but that's what we did all right so let's uh introduce our guest tonight go ahead i'm so excited yeah i can't yeah. believe he said yes yeah. This is my excited face. This is this is her excited. <laughs> it's much
1: more excited than the face of coming over to CFBU, but I'm not going to call that out publicly. I guess
0: <laughs> we have a Dr. Cal Beisner tonight. I have followed Dr. Beisner's work um, since the '90s, probably, and um, just super honored that he's. I was he, still in grade school. I know. <laughs> generational differences. So uh, I'm just super excited that he said yes and looking forward to the conversation. One of his areas of expertise, I mean, he has like this crazy resume of history, philosophy, economics, justice, and um, just looking forward to talking to him in particular. Like there there were so many topics we could have talked about, but I kind of narrowed it down to the question of what is biblical justice so that we can really drill into that tonight together so i'm looking forward to the conversation yeah so, too. i just got off
1: a podcast talking about justice okay yeah so i can't wait
0: so let's get uh, dr beisner on there he is welcome hello sir hello
2: thank you very much it's it's a real pleasure to be with you I'm it looks like you're in you. the
0: library
2: well this is uh i mean it's part of my library yeah oh wow Let's see, behind me is mostly stuff on economics on this side and law on this side. My um, well, history is over there, but you can't see it because it's behind the... Wow, uh, the,
0: that's fantastic. Uh, wow. Because our guest last week downstairs. was...
2: downstairs.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Because that... our guest last week was in, in a library. In, in the literal library. <laughs> yeah.
1: This is just your own library. Yeah. I wish I did own that many books. That, that is, Wow. Well, awesome. for... you know,
2: people come in sometimes and they, they see my library and they say, have you read all those books? And I answer, oh, some of them two, three, four times. That's right. And they really get amazed. <laughs> and they say, my goodness, how can you do that? And I say, well, what did I say? I said, you read all these books two, three, four times? I said, no, that's not what I said. I said, I read some of them two, three or four (laughs) times. I could have read one of these books four times and never opened any of the rest. And what I said was true. And then we get to start talking about logic and the difference between particulars and universals.
1: Dang, we coming right out the gate with it like that. My, <laughs> Let me get my coffee. I didn't know. I wasn't ready. You caught me off guard. <laughs> okay. I'm going to need my fan,
0: apparently. All, All right. right. So let's first start off by letting our viewers get to know you. You might be new to a lot of our our audience. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about your work at the Cornwall Alliance and what that's about.
2: Okay, yeah, um, the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, uh, cornwallalliance.org, is a network of just under 70 evangelical Christian scholars. Um, Roughly a third of them are natural scientists, uh, uh, biologists, chemists, physicists, uh, climate scientists, geologists, you name it, uh, including, by the way, some of the world's absolute top climate scientists. Uh, climate change being a very controversial issue nowadays, of course. Um, About a third are economists, uh, especially those who specialize in either development, you know, what is it that brings whole societies out of poverty and keeps them out of poverty, or uh, the environment, environmental economics. Uh, What are the insights of economics that that can help us to, to solve environmental problems? And then the other third are theologians, philosophers, ethicists, uh, pastors, religious ministry leaders, and so on. And we work together to educate the public and policymakers on three things simultaneously and interwoven. The first is what we call biblical earth stewardship. And I appreciated your reference uh, earlier to, uh, to uh, Genesis 1 and, and uh, ruling. Uh, because Genesis 1.28 is kind of our key verse. When God had created Adam and Eve in his own image, male and female, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. And when we look at that verse, we, we need to carefully define what is meant by this dominion Because as a matter of fact, this verse has been used as a ground for criticizing the whole Judeo-Christian tradition when it comes to uh, man's relationship to nature or to the rest of of creation. Uh, Lynn White Jr., a medieval historian, not a biblical scholar, not an environmental scholar, not a scientist, but a medieval historian, wrote an article in Science Magazine back in 1967 called The Religious Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, in which he said that this verse, Genesis 1.28, had been used by Jews and Christians through the millennia to justify abusing the earth, just using it whatever way we please without any regard for, uh, for the beauty, for uh, the glory of God or anything like that. So we have paid a lot of attention. By the way, that was, of course, a complete caricature. You can go through all the rabbinic commentary, all of the Christian commentary on Genesis 128, and you'll never find anybody arguing that that's, that's what it permits. So we have generated, we've, we've developed what we think is a good way of describing the kind of dominion talked of there, that godly dominion— because we're made in the image of God and should reflect God ourselves, means men and women working together lovingly to uh, enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. And because of that, what that really means is we're addressing the two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor. And we think that's a pretty good understanding of that verse. So, our first aim is to educate the public and policymakers on biblical earth stewardship, or what we call godly dominion, and that involves an awful lot of scientific and ethical and economic work. Our second aim is to educate on the economics of development uh, and of of uh, uh, the environment, and on the on the environment side, what we see is that that often you need to carefully address incentives, uh, which is a a subject very dear to economists. I wrote a lot about that in my own book, Prosperity and Poverty, the Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity, Mm -hmm. published back in 1988, Krista, which I guess is uh, probably around about the time that that you maybe started uh, hearing of me. Yeah. the, uh, the the economists are able to answer questions like, if you want to achieve such and such, what are the things that you need to do? Uh, how can you appeal to people's incentives so that they will cooperate with you in doing that? We also address economic development for the very poor. And I'm not talking about the poor in America who, frankly, are rich beyond the dreams of avarice for The average people in developing countries around the world, I'm not talking about what lifts an individual or a a family or a very small group of people out of poverty. I'm talking about what is it that lifts an entire large society out of poverty and keeps it out of poverty long term. And both from our study of scripture and from our study of economic history, we're convinced that there are two things that are indispensable to that. The first is a set of five social conditions. Those are private property rights, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law. The other is a material condition, and that is access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy. Because everything that we do requires energy, making food, clothing, shelter, on and on. And so Unfortunately, an awful lot of the environmental movement opposes those five social institutions and opposes access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy. And so what that means is that a lot of environmental policy turns out to be very harmful to the world's poor. And what we're looking for is ways to integrate taking good care of the natural world around us with lifting whole societies out of poverty, And partly we just point out, hey, look, you know, a clean, healthful, beautiful environment is a costly good. And like any other costly good, wealthier people can afford more than poorer people can. If you want to see the dirtiest place in a city, you don't go to the wealthiest areas, you go to the poorest areas. That's not because the poor don't like cleanliness, it's because cleanliness is costly. Uh, If you want to see the poorest places in the world, you don't go to the wealthiest countries, you go to the poorest countries. So if we want to see a clean, healthful, beautiful environment, we need to want to see economic development as well. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that we want to educate people on is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this incredibly magnificent news that sinners like me, who have offended God in all sorts of different ways, can be reconciled to God uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is... Uh, because he died to bear our sins on the tree and he rose again from the dead, God justifying him and and signaling his acceptance of his sacrifice. Uh, I can be forgiven of my sins. I can be declared righteous in God's sight, reconciled with him uh, by faith. And this is a tremendous thing. And along with that comes the biblical worldview with its theology and its ethics all those different things that we learn from scripture. So we try to tie all of those things together with what we do in the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation.
0: That's a, it's great because I love their multidisciplinary approach. It's really yeah. something that, you know, I has inspired me in a lot of the ways that we have started to build the ministry at the Center for Biblical Unity. And I'm going to tell a little secret right now. And that is that when Monique was in critical race theory and had a lot of ideas about social justice, Dr. Beisner's work is what I was looking at and kind of was helped to guide and frame a lot of our conversations mm-hmm. about justice. You didn't know that's what I was doing, but but that's what I was doing. And so there's a, there's a certain sense in which Dr. Bisoner's approach and research um played a pivotal role in me presenting a different vision for justice than you had encountered before. And mm. so there's there's a sense in which his work kind of was already undergirding a lot of the things that we're doing, but you just... You, you weren't aware of it, but that is, you know, a large part of the inspiration. So, so Dr. Bissner, you're responsible for the hoodwink and bamboozle? <laughs>
2: Absolutely. That's my specialty is yes. hoodwinking and bamboozling.
0: There it is. So I'm going to yep. p- have, go I sent the, your book, Prosperity and Poverty, to Bob. He's going to put it up on the screen for everyone so oh. they can get connected to it um, and find out more about kind of your approach to these issues.
1: Now, Dr. Bissner, I know huh. you don't know much about me, but I actually upheld um, the framework slash worldview of critical race theory for a long time and um, was a social justice warrior advocate, however you want to, you know. work in social through. service. Yeah, I have. I have 20 years of social service experience, and mm. that's been my whole world. And so the concept of social justice was very near and dear to my heart. Uh-huh. And there was no difference between social justice and biblical justice, because obviously social justice is biblical justice. I'm not saying that I believe that now. Hold on, y'all. So you thought, yeah. <laughs> I see some people riling up. Um, <laughs> but at the time, that was very much my my mindset is that, you know, and not knowing much theologically, Um that biblical justice and social justice were the exact same thing. And of course, if you are going to be for biblical justice, you would definitely be for social justice. Can you um, just help us thread through the differences between social justice and biblical justice, or um, was I right? And they're interchangeable.
2: Well, uh, they're certainly not interchange- interchangeable. And by the way, let me first commend you for your past on this, because I I really think that what draws most people into the social justice movement uh, is that they see that as the path to helping those who are hurting in various different ways. Uh, they, They are approaching it as a matter of compassion and love and of course, the, you know, the, the two great commandments are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if we, if we think that social justice is how we love, then of course we would want to support social justice. The trouble is that, that over a period of more than a century, uh, about a century and a half, that term social justice has developed a very specific uh, content that is quite different from what I think a lot of people uh, would discover justice is if they were to look carefully at the Bible itself in regard to that. Um, Fundamentally social justice, if, if it simply meant justice spread through all of society, so that everybody gets treated justly. Oh my goodness, of course, that's what we ought to have. I would be a social justice warrior. But that's not what it has meant in the actual literature, in the movement itself. Uh, Social justice came very early on by the end of the 19th century to mean some sort of an approximation of equality of distribution of wealth, of power, of, of position in society. Um, what people nowadays refer to as equity, although, frankly, that is another instance of a, a sort of a, a twisting of a term. Equality <laughs> is, is what they really have in mind. Equity is a term that used to mean simply justice or fairness. Uh, it was a, a legal term for uh, offering a person a, a fair and just trial in case of a of a lawsuit or a criminal proceeding. Uh, now equity has come to be practically synonymous with equality, which is really sad because it's robbed us of an otherwise very helpful term. But social justice tends really in practice to, to relate to this quest for equalizing wealth and power and position in society, and the trouble with that is that, well, there are many troubles with that, one of those troubles is simply that you cannot do that. It is not possible to do that while leaving people free to be themselves. Um, to To pursue their own interests and to do things the way they want to do them, uh, social justice as the the quest for equality of condition, and personal liberty, are actually incompatible, uh, because you know we're not we're not all alike, uh, we differ in all sorts of ways. I mean, sure, the the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal. Uh, And There is a sense in which we are. We're all equally the image of God, and therefore we all are due equal justice. We're all due due equal respect as human beings in terms of the sanctity of our life and and things of that sort. But hey, at six foot five, uh, as a sophomore in high school, actually as a freshman in high school, at six foot five, I had a whole lot better odds of of playing on the high school basketball team than my friend Andre at five foot two. I mean, that's just the way it is. The outcomes were not going to be equal. It was not possible. Unless, of course, you chopped off my, you know, some of my leg. You know, that, that might equalize this, but I'm not sure that would be quite what people had in mind. Um, people differ in many, many ways, gloriously. I mean, this is a wonderful gift from God that we have so many differences among us. And those differences work themselves out in different paths and different outcomes in our lives. The only way to er erase those differences of outcome is to erase the differences of behavior, the the differences of aptitude, of of likes and dislikes, of of skills and of chosen paths. That and liberty are incompatible, but also incompatible with social justice is the, the, uh, the, the Biblical definition of justice itself and I think it'll it'll behoove us to start getting into that Yeah, yeah,
0: I want to get into that because I love how he said that because I haven't heard that phrase before of equality of condition Mm -hmm. You know that that is, you know another way of thinking of this Popular word right now that's out there of equity um, And and the impossibility of arriving at equality of condition and how that's not compatible with personal freedom. Yeah. So um because it, it
1: would truly I'm sorry Yeah, it, go ahead. it would truly require for everyone to almost be robots or everyone to choose the same thing, everyone must be man- mandated, you know, or of their own free will choose the same things across the board in order to get the same condition.
0: Yeah. Now you
2: Which by the way if I if I may yeah. interject here Monique um, if you're familiar with the history of the progressive movement in education uh, rooted in uh, John Dewey, uh, who, who uh, pretty well took control of the School of Education at Columbia University and uh, fostered his ideas in a way that, that largely shaped uh, the American public school movement from the 1930s onward, uh, Dewey's aim as a progressive committed to the socialist vision of mankind was the production of what uh, Marx and Engels would call the new communist man. And a part of how that would be achieved would be through the educational system, intentionally producing people who were functionally literate. That is, they could read just enough to read the instruction manual for their, their part in uh, an assembly line or something like that, but who would not really enjoy reading. And so they, they adopted a reading methodology, uh, a, a methodology of teaching reading called look, say, or whole word instead of phonics. And that made it so that people had a very difficult time developing a large vocabulary. And consequently, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't enjoy reading a wide variety of things. This made it so that they were easy to, to to control as cogs in a machine instead of real people. Uh, that's been one of the things that has really hindered uh, freedom in America is this intentional pursuit of the collectivist uh, socialist vision of man.
0: I think as we I want to drill deeper into, you know, the biblical vision for justice. He, yeah. he, uh, Dr. Beisner's laid some good groundwork on the the secular idea of social justice and what that definition has become i think i want to ground our conversation in a very important distinction that i heard him say earlier but i want to highlight it is you know the difference between you know the gospel the gospel the great commission of matthew 28 19 and 20 that you know the the gospel transforms it 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 brings us into a, a covenant relationship with God. But then we are to disciple the nations. We are to teach everyone to obey all that Jesus has commanded us to do. The two great commandments that, that Dr. Bisoner mentioned earlier, of love God and love neighbor, that that's, that's an outcome. That is a fruit of a heart changed by the gospel. So we don't ever want to like Get mission confusion mm-hmm. <laughs> about yeah. what we're doing and why we're right. doing it. So we're on the side of the Great Commission. Of when we talk about justice, we're on the teaching people to to obey all of Christ's commands. This that that's the side of the equation that we're talking about, mm. and one of those commands is relates to justice, and justice is part of God's very nature. So. Yeah.
1: I say mission confusion or mission conflation, Yeah, where we now collapse those two things on top of each other and they become one.
0: Yeah. So let's focus on, um, I like how you break down sort of the the four criteria of biblical justice. I think that helps to make the biblical standard a lot more tangible for lay people. So maybe let's just start with a very brief, like kind of what are the four aspects of biblical justice that you see? And then we're going to drill into each one of them individually. Okay,
2: okay. Um, I, I I came to these actually. Goodness gracious! Now it would be, it would be about thirty nine years ago, while I was working on my uh, master's degree in, in uh, economic ethics under the late Dr. Russell Kirk, one of the great minds of of the modern American uh, political scene. Um, And in that, I I spent a great deal of time uh, just combing the scriptures as to what is meant by justice and uh, looking very, very carefully at every usage of the terms just and justice, right and righteous, uh, case uh, in terms of criminal case or or ethical case, uh, uh, claim of right. And looking at all of those, I came to define justice this way. Biblical justice means rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in conformity to the righteous standard of God's moral law. And so there we have these these four criteria. Impartiality, that is, we don't play favorites, you know. I mean, in in other ways, we can play favorites. Um, I certainly favor my wife over everybody else when it comes to marital relations. When it comes to uh, the person I most enjoy spending time with, uh, but that's not a matter of justice. Uh, other than that, when I promised to, you know, to keep myself to her until death do we part, I need to fulfill that promise. Uh, but there there are there are all sorts of things where we would play favorites, but not when it comes to justice yeah so the, the four aspects
0: if I could just summarize them are impartiality, proportionality yes and then are giving someone their due yes and doing it according to the biblical standards that right. are Conformity. laid
2: out. Conformity to God's law. Conformity
0: to God's law. So those are kind of our big four ideas for for biblical justice.
2: You hit the impartiality uh, in many, many different situations. Let me just quote here uh, from Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17, uh, where we read, hear the cases, and that translates the Hebrew verb shafat, judge, hear the cases, between your brethren and judge, Shafat righteously. And there we have the word tzedek, which is uh, for righteousness or what is done righteously, between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment, Mishpat. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence for the judgment, Mishpat's, is God's. Uh, so judgment, then, must always be impartial. And if it's going to be impartial, then that's going to recognize that because people do different things, they are due different things.
0: So when we think about impartiality, we don't want to fall into the error of saying all impartial all. Partiality is a sin because some partiality doesn't involve a judgment.
2: Like he gave
0: the example of a marriage, like I'm partial to Bob and I, you know, as my husband and I, I I have no partiality toward other men. I'm partial toward my children in a a special way. But those aren't judge judgment issues.
1: But when you say that some partiality does include a judgment issue and and I think what we have to remember is that the plumb line for judgment has to be God's moral law it has to, that has to be yeah. the standard
0: because so that's, that's our number 4 mm-hmm. yeah definitely
1: because yeah. and I was just speaking with some some brothers about this earlier it's that you know what if what if there's someone who's a proponent of LGBTQ+ plus who I maybe identifies with with LGBTQ+ plus and they now apply for the pastorate wouldn't there be a judgment or some kind of of saying like in, in well in my church anyway, um, you know? No, we don't do that. So we have to we have to judge rightly. You know, it's not that we're saying you yeah. don't judge. No, we judge rightly, and the way that we judge rightly is by the the application of God's moral law. His law
0: is the standard. Perfect. So hey, I like you. Yes, <laughs> thank you.
2: <laughs> see yes. how see
0: how well I taught her, Doctor yes. So I I think. We need to stay on perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we think about what's happening in our current culture, I'm wondering if you can uh, maybe give us an example or two of where you see God's principle of impartiality in our judgment kind of being violated, um, where we are not judging the the great. And, and the small according to the same standards. Where, uh, what would be a couple of contemporary examples that you see of that?
2: Sure. Um, uh, one would be a very, very broad brush uh, example, and that is in the entire uh, critical race theory uh, movement or critical social justice movement, which says that the very fact of being white defines you as a racist, a white supremacist uh, and and someone who is privileged in ways that ought not to be um, that's that's definitely not the impartiality that we find in scripture. And by the way, uh, let me just tie this to another of these uh, criteria of justice, and that is rendering to each his due. In Romans thirteen seven, Paul instructs believers to render to each to to all their due. Actually the the Greek is singular to each his due. Uh, In Proverbs 24, 12 we read uh, that God will will not render, uh, that that God will render to each man according to his deeds. Um, It it dawned on me not long ago actually that the that the singular here is actually quite important because justice doesn't look at people in groups. Justice looks at people as individuals in terms of their own conduct. And so when we just decide, okay, all whites are white supremacists, or if we decide all blacks are lazy bumps, or if we decide all Asians are sly, you know devious people or all jews are money grubbing or something like that that's not impartiality and it it lumps people together in groups
0: so impartiality um, involves considering the individual is is that absolutely. part of the biblical standard because there's so much pushback right now even among christians who are justice advocates that are telling us Well, the biblical worldview is more collective, and only the West is individual. That's a very Western idea, and I push back against that and say, well, I don't think that that's strictly a Western idea. I think that there's something biblical in our standard of justice that even God considers us as individuals. I will stand before the great white throne someday And my husband will stand before the great white throne someday, and God will judge us as individuals. He won't judge us as a collective. And But there is so much pushback right now in the culture, and even in the church, it says we need to abandon the idea of individualism um, and get more of this collectivist idea. But that's not actually part of God's justice standard.
2: No, um, but, you know, the idea of the, the need to abandon individualism comes partly as a response to a particular kind of individualism, an individualism that says, uh, I, I suppose we could associate this with, with Anne Rand, the, the great libertarian uh, thinker of the 20th century, author of Atlas Shrugged and various other things, um, that says, you should just look out for yourself and that's all nobody else, uh, just yourself comes first. Well, Jesus certainly wouldn't approve of that. You know, He said uh, that uh, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, uh, that no one loves his, uh, someone else more than by giving up his life for his, his friend. Um, so that sort of individualism is very selfish, and that is not biblical at all. But there's a different kind of individualism. And that's the individualism that says, I am responsible for myself. I'm not going to push on somebody else the necessity of taking care of me. I will be glad to try to take care of other people too, but I'm not going to force other people to take care of me. That is proper individualism. And it really does come from the scriptures. Uh, If anyone doubts that this is really a biblical notion that has shaped Western civilization and the Western understanding of justice, I would highly recommend that such people read the book, The Book That Made Your World, The Book That Made Your World by my good friend, Dr. Vishal Mangawadi. Vishal Mangawadi is an Indian Christian philosopher. And this book basically says to people in the West, look, here are the things about your Western civilization that you inherited from the Bible but they have been so deeply embedded that you don't even notice them anymore. They're like, you know, they are to you as water is to a fish. Individualism is part of it. Responsible individualism is, is part of that.
1: Now I have a question and um, uh-huh. it's something that we've talked about a bit, especially when I was coming out of the whole social justice narrative and things like that. In the old Testament, yeah. you do see God addressing Israel as a group um, and even in, like, Micah 6, when he tells them to do justice, he's talking to, like, the group. And so how do you differentiate between this individualism that you're saying Scripture is is talking about and we should be um, applying and that we've even adopted into our modern culture versus, like, I think what some will say is Scripture or God adjust, um, addressing a group about justice. Ju- judging a yeah. group. Yeah. Right. Ju- like, judging right. them for their lack of justice.
2: There are covenantal relationships into which people enter in a variety of different ways uh, in which we do share responsibility. As a citizen of the United States, uh, a republic in which I have a right to vote uh, for the people who make decisions about public policy, I have a share in the responsibility for that policy. That's part of my covenantal relationship. Uh, in my in my marriage, we have a covenant, and I share responsibility for the choices that my wife makes in the raising of our seven children. We, as parents, had responsibility for them. Uh, so, covenantal relationships can involve and do involve this shared responsibility. However, both Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 18 very expressly reject the notion that any individual should be punished for the deeds of a different individual. Um, This is is a a critically important point in scripture. Uh, We may be be included in a punishment that comes on a whole society because of the evils shared by that society, because we are a part of it and we we have been part of the responsible parties in that. Uh, But that's a far cry from saying that I should be punished for someone else's bad deeds. Uh, Now, further, by the way, God's judgment, you know, (laughs) I often tell people the last thing I want from God is justice. Mm. Because if God just gives me justice, I'm in hell forever. Right. So if God brings destruction on a whole society, the good and the bad right? We have to remember that none of those good are good entirely. Uh, (laughs) We all are sinners, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, so none of us deserves from God to be alive, to be blessed, to have wealth, to have health, to have happiness or anything else. Uh, Instead, we deserve damnation. And it's only because of the sacrificial atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that instead we receive blessing from God.
0: So when we think about the second component of justice, that kind of leads us right into that of giving someone their due. And yes. you know that that flows right from the the judging of individuals, then we're giving yeah. them their due. And even the 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 proportion we, we give them their due in proportion mm-hmm. to right. proportionality. what they, yeah, proportionality. So yeah. I'm wondering on the, um, aspect of proportionality, is that kind of the idea that we have in popular culture of, um, making, uh, the punishment fit the crime. Like yeah. we don't want to over punish or under punish. Is, is that kind of what you mean by proportionality?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, you'll see a lot of this in biblical law. For example, in Exodus chapters 21 and 22, you'll see uh, distinctions made between somebody who does accidental harm to a neighbor. Well, in that case, he should he should restore that neighbor from the accidental harm done, but there's no punishment on top of it. Uh, there's no uh, doubling of of the uh, of the amount that he has to repay or anything like that. But if it was negligent, if he if he had known before of the of the the risk, and he was negligent about it and harm came to the neighbor neighbor, then he must bear the entire cost by himself. Or if it was intentional, if he actually stole from the neighbor then he has to return to the neighbor a multiple of the value of what he stole. So, you know, we could put it this way. Uh, we, we don't prescribe capital punishment for shoplifting, but neither do we pr- prescribe a slap on the wrist for murder. The punishment should fit the crime, the reward should fit the conduct, the good conduct. That's the idea of proportionality and it's, it's all over the scriptures.
0: So is this the like idea of like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? I think that when that's quoted, it often seems like it's quoted yeah. as like, "That's so extreme, eye for an eye." But I think what it's saying, and, and Dr. Bisser, I'd love to hear if you think that you know you, you want to correct me, but I, I think what that means when I read that in Scripture is that judgment should be proportional if if there's, if there's an, a wrong yeah. done where an eye is injured. The idea of the proportionality is that that doesn't become a capital crime where mm-hmm. we overpunish mm-hmm. and right. we, don't, we don't underpunish. It's rather that it has to be proportional. Is that kind of the idea behind that popular yes. saying? Uh,
2: yes, it's, it's, it's that. It's also the, the uh, realization that, that that's setting a maximum. Okay? It's not saying you have to take you know, if, if Setting somebody, a maximum, is, that's good. somebody yeah. knocks out somebody else's eye, you have to take his eye out as well. No, it's saying you cannot do more than that. Mm. And you also can find ways of, of looking for some other equivalency of, of value. Uh, and, and then of course, it's also possible for the victim to simply forgive. Um, and, and that's what we're called on as Christians mm. to do. But that Oh, it's not so a good. matter of justice. That's a matter of grace. Mm-hmm. And this points to how important it is to distinguish these two things, because if you get justice gone, wrong and you start to define it in a way that confuses it with grace, then you're going to wind up uh, you know, corrupting the gospel itself, because the gospel is all about God's grace to us, uh, not his treating us justly. He's treating us graciously, giving us Tremendous benefit where what we deserve is instead the punishment.
1: Maybe you can help me thread through something that I've been considering. I think I've landed pretty solidly somewhere. But in the conversation of like giving someone their due proportionality, even looking at judgment based on a group versus the individual. And sometimes we have covenantal relationship. We live in a republic. When you look at the conversation of reparations with all of those things in like in view how should we or you consider the, the idea of reparations? I've come to land where I've come to land, but I would love to hear or, you know, have some of that threaded through for myself and other people who are watching.
0: Yeah, just biblically speaking, like what yeah. wisdom yeah. Is, is there that we can yeah. think about?
2: Well, biblical law clearly requires that if George steals from Tom... George has to return what he stole, and there should be some multiple on top of that as punishment for the theft that distinguishes theft from accidental or even negligent harm, right? And so in that sense, you know, in that case, uh, Scripture requires reparation, repair of the broken relationship, right? Um, But Scripture also encourages Tom to forgive George, uh, and that becomes a matter of grace. Now, in terms of our courts, which are supposed to do justice, okay, a judge can't say, well, George, I forgive you, so you don't have to repay Tom what you stole from him. That's not for the judge to do. If the judge orders George to repay Tom, and Tom then says, your honor, I appreciate the judgment, uh, it is fair, now, I want, I want to forgive George. That's Tom's prerogative, and that's a matter of, of grace. What's crucial is that the soul that sins must die, <laughs> to, to take one phrase out of scripture, right? The reparation has to come from someone who actually did the crime, or at the very least, from someone whose property clearly can be defined as having come from that crime. So, for example, George steals Tom's car and George then resells the car to Mary. And later on, the police trace it and they prove that the car properly belongs to Tom. Well, the car should be returned to Tom, even though Mary paid George for it. And Mary should not be reimbursed by Tom or Anybody but George, for what she paid him, Um, but Mary should not be required to pay the added penalty for the theft. George should, right? So, and and the farther we get from the individual or individuals who did the crimes, to where the property is now, to where those who have benefited or who have been harmed by it now, the farther we get, the more difficult it becomes to determine who's responsible for how much. And when that becomes the case, what we have to realize is that there is a a limitation to our ability as human beings to figure these things out. Thomas Sowell wrote a wonderful book called the quest for cosmic justice, in which he points out that the very fact that we sometimes will will try so hard to achieve perfect justice results in our doing grave injustice because we've failed to recognize the limits of our human knowledge, of our human wisdom, uh, and and just that you know there are some some problems in life that we just have to recognize we're going to have to live with that.
1: that, I can't with you. That's so good. Um, yeah, I, I just really appreciate that approach and the thoughts behind that and the soul that sins must, must die. Ezekiel. I
0: I think that it's, it's helpful. And I think that the national conversation we're having right now in reparations is is really tough because it's so shame focused and yes. you know it really takes us back to genesis three where the you know the the man blames the woman the woman blames the snake it's just a bunch of blaming wow. and in the end you know it, it feels like we're we're kind of right back in the garden with a lot wow. of this blaming and it's it's very damaging I think one of the was. really
2: tragic things about it is that it is infiltrating the church where Christians, whole churches, whole denominations are demanding this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's really running up against one of the most powerful parables that Jesus ever told. That was the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, this servant owed the king an immense amount of money, something that uh, couldn't have been accumulated in, in thousands of years at the normal pay of a servant, and the king forgave him completely. Then that servant went out and found another servant who owed him a fairly piddling sum, and he demanded that that be repaid to him right away. And when the other servant couldn't do it, he, he had that servant thrown in prison. The king heard about this and brought the first servant back and said, "You know, you wicked man!" Uh, and then he 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 reimposed the debt on that servant and had him cast into outer darkness. You know, if we are going to jump on the reparations bandwagon, we have ju- we we have pushed grace, we have pushed forgiveness out of the church. Real racial reconciliation, real reconciliation of any enemies, of any people who have competed with each other, who have harmed each other in various ways, real reconciliation comes only when there are repentance and forgiveness. And sometimes that forgiveness has to precede the repentance, because if I refuse to to forgive the one who sinned against me, well, how does, how does Jesus finish up in the Lord's prayer? You know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men their sins, God will forgive you. If you don't forgive men, neither will God forgive you. I need to be quick to forgive those who have harmed me, whether, whether they've been close or far, whether uh, close or far in time or in space.
1: That's so good. And I appreciate what you said about it's, you know, it's coming into the church. And I know we didn't plan this question, but how do you see this narrative of um, basically unforgiveness and uh, to me, a lack of grace? Do you see this as a, a, a competitor to the gospel?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I titled my book, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and gospel, and frankly, you know this goes into a great deal more depth than what we can in our conversa- conversation here. And uh, for that reason, uh, if I may, I'd like to mention. Yeah, definitely. That this is available. This is available from the Cornwall Alliance for the stewardship of creation, uh, free, as our our way of saying thank you when people make a donation of literally any size. Doesn't matter how small. All they need to do is to go to cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. Click on the donate button. And as they fill out the donation form, when they come to the comments page, just write in social justice, social justice. We'll know what they want. We will send it to them. And 100% of their gift will be tax deductible.
0: That's great. And if people want to share it with their small groups or anything like that, it is also available for sale in your store, but we want to yes. encourage people to get connected with Dr. Bisoner's work at the Cornwall Alliance. Um, did you want to ask him another question or no? no go You're ahead. Good. All right. So kind of the fourth standard of our criteria of justice. So we've been looking at from a biblical standpoint is we talked about impartiality, um, rendering someone their due proportionality, and then using scripture as the standard I think this is so important, and I I don't want to neglect this because um, I think that one of the great um, tragedies in modern evangelicalism is our neglect of looking at the law as a helpful um, kind of set of case laws to help us understand how God thinks about justice. Our tendency right now is we're a little bit— you know, kind of like the ancient era of Marcion, where we're only, we were looking at this sort of truncated canon of mostly focusing on the New Testament, or even now in progressive Christianity circles, only focusing on the words of Jesus is sort of this weird canon within a canon. And we've got to look at scripture as a whole. Now we can say clearly that like the law doesn't save us. The law points to Christ that, that Jesus fulfills the law. He shows us how to live it perfectly. But we don't, if we throw away the Mosaic Law, we don't get a lot of the details that the prophets assume that we understand when they're telling us exactly. about Israel being condemned for their lack of justice. In order to define justice, to understand God's standards of justice, we have to look at the Mosaic Law. So this is an important important aspect of the conversation about justice I think is hugely neglected right now.
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, (laughs) when Jesus said that all the law was summed up in these two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor, you don't sum something up if you leave some of it out. Uh, now, he had in mind, by the way, specifically the moral law. There is also ceremonial law, mm-hmm. and that was fulfilled by Christ on the cross. Uh, and so that doesn't bind us. There were also judicial laws. And this is, uh, I happen to be a, a Presbyterian, and, and we look back at the Westminster Confession and catechisms as sort of the, uh, the, the standard summary of, of our faith. Uh, the Westminster Confession in chapter 19 says that the ceremonial law was given to Israel as a church under age. That is, like to a minor, you give certain rules that you know can be cast off when he becomes an adult, right? Uh, the, the judicial laws, it says, were given to Israel as a body politic. Now, it's really important to recognize that the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws together were given to Israel as a church under age that was also a body politic, a nation. Now, since the coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, there is no church that is also a nation. There is no nation that is also a church. And so the judicial laws, as the confession puts it, no longer bind any nation except insofar as what it calls the general equity there's that word that we talked about earlier might require the general equity is the principle of justice underlying that law so for example when Deuteronomy 22: 6 says that if you build a house uh, you should put a parapet around the roof so that people don't fall off the roof well you know why why do that I mean I I have a, a house with rather steep roofs. Uh, why would anybody be up there? I don't think I need a parapet about, around my roof. Well, in ancient Israel, roofs were flat, and that was where you got a breeze. And so you had your dinner parties up there. And uh, if somebody had a little too much wine, you didn't want him stumbling off the side of your roof and breaking his neck. So you built a parapet, you, you took reasonable precaution to reduce the risk of, of significant harm to those who were on your property. Well, the general equity of that would say that living in a in a, a climate that can have significant snow, you ought to have a slanted roof so that the snow doesn't build up and and cave in the roof and kill the people inside the house. That's the general equity. So we can look at biblical case law, we can look at, at uh, uh, the statutes, the ordinances and so on. And grasp the the justice, the principle behind these, and then figure out how to apply those in the modern situation. But the moral law itself in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not uh, worship idols, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy, you shall honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not... uh, uh, commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. The moral law binds all people everywhere forever. And that's the, the fundamental basis of our understanding of justice. It's also, by the way, the fundamental basis of our understanding of love. When Paul tells us in Romans 13, that love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13:10. Uh, The Greek there is really quite interesting. The word fulfillment, pleroma, is the full complement of something. It would describe the full crew of a ship or the full cargo of a ship. Any crew member missing, any cargo missing, you didn't have the pleroma. Well, if love is the fulfillment of the law, then that means all of the law, the moral law, which Paul had just cited in verses 8 and 9, has to be included in that. So I can't say, well because we love each other, we can have sex outside of marriage, okay? Because that's not love, because the Bible forbids sex out of marriage. And I can't say, well, because uh, Jane and Mary love each other, they can have homosexual sex, or Tom and George love each other, they can have homosexual sex. No, that's not love. The Bible defines love partly by reference to the moral law
0: This is so good because i it's so helpful i think to understand because we hear a lot of conversation in our churches today about well god just says love god love neighbor but what we have to understand is the details of that of how do we love our neighbor is why we look in the law the law or love is law, not gospel is something I'm often saying on the show. So we have to understand, again, what side of Matthew 28:19 and 20 are we on? Again, the law doesn't save us. The gospel comes along. It changes hearts. It transforms us. Holy Spirit comes to live in us. But the law informs and shapes, you know, how we walk together as God's people. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have those conversations— our souls will be uninformed about God's standard of, of how to love him and love our neighbors. So such That's an, a, such an important conversation. Okay. We got a, a couple of YouTube questions. I want to go to here, Dr. Beisner. Um, this sure. first one says, how does a concept of Jubilee inform Shalom? What is the connection of Jubilee to Jesus and the gospel?
2: Yeah, I actually talk about that uh, about that passage in my book, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice. I talked about it in my much earlier book, Prosperity and Poverty as well. Uh, the Jubilee year required that um, if I if I became in if I had a need for an infusion of cash, all right, and I decided to sell some land to somebody. I could only sell that land for a maximum of the number of years left until the next jubilee, which came in the year following the seventh sabbatical year. So you had seven sevens of years plus one every 50th year. Um, And then in the jubilee, the, the land had to come back to me. Leviticus 25 very clearly explains that the price of this sale of the land was to be determined by multiplying the value of the annual harvest times the number of harvest years left until the Jubilee. That by the way, would not include the sabbatical years that might intervene because in the sabbatical years you weren't supposed to work the land and, and uh, do a, you know, a commercial harvest. You could walk through the fields and pick what grew naturally, but uh, you were all supposed to rest during the sabbatical year. So. Actually, the text actually tells us that you're not really selling the land, you're selling the crops. And what this means is that the land functions very similarly to how a house does now as collateral for a mortgage loan. When you pay off the mortgage loan, the deed comes to you. There's no redistribution of wealth there because you've paid off the loan. Well, when someone sold a piece of land until Jubilee, the harvests in the intervening years went to the buyer of the land. Those harvests paid off the loan. So at the end of the period, the collateral goes back to the, in, in a sense, the borrower, the seller of the land is actually like a borrower of the cash. Uh, same, same principle applies if, if you become poor and you sell yourself into the the, the Hebrew word is translated slavery, but uh, we might refer to it as indentured servanthood. Uh, You say, okay, in exchange for such and such an amount of money in advance, I will serve you for the next however many years. At the Jubilee, you had to be let free. But the reason that you could without any redistribution of wealth is that your labor in the meantime has paid back what you received in cash. So there's no redistribution of wealth in the Jubilee year. And neither, by the way, is there in the Deuteronomy uh, 15 sabbatical year regulation, which unfortunately the the new international version translates Deuteronomy 15.1, as saying that in the seventh year, you must have a grant a remission of debts. Uh, No, the Hebrew word there, uh, Oh, uh, it, it escapes me the moment, but the Hebrew word there doesn't mean remission. It means a letting drop. And the same term is used as to what you're supposed to do with your land during the sabbatical year in, in Exodus 2311, I believe it is. Uh, you're supposed to let drop your land in the sabbatical year. Well, that can't be a permanent uh, thing because you go back and farm the land later. Similarly, you would not collect on a debt in the in the sabbatical year because that way your your debtor would be able to enjoy the year of rest right along with you. Uh, but after the sabbatical year, you would resume collection on the debt. So there's no redistribution of wealth there either.
0: Very good. All right, well, we're way over time. We want to <laughs> respect your 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 uh, time. We've got some more questions in the chat. Monique and I will continue to answer those. But we want to thank you, Dr. Beisner, for uh, sitting with us for a while and and talking. It's been super helpful. I think that you've given people a lot of really great information. And we'd love to have you back sometime and maybe talk about uh, wealth, poverty, and the environment or private property rights. I can think of uh, uh, many topics. We'd love to. She (laughs) already has some.
2: would would love to do it. We'd love to do it. Um, And uh, something that we perhaps could follow up with on on this conversation is another issue that I discuss in my book, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice. And that's the difference between negative rights and positive rights. Negative rights being rights against harm and positive rights being rights to benefits.
0: Oh, that's good. And
2: what I argue in that booklet is that uh, positive rights are phony. Uh, that there are only negative rights, and it's really important to see why that should be the case. That would be but great. We, that would we wind be a, great up conversation. With a lot of problems if we pursue positive rights.
0: Just yeah.
1: had a conversation with somebody earlier today about negative and positive <laughs> rights. Very good. Yes. All right. right.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Beisner. We really appreciate it, and and we want to encourage everyone to get connected uh, to Dr. Beisner's, uh organization, the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation um if you want to know more go get his book you can make a donation to the Cornwall Alliance and get the book Social Justice versus Biblical Justice for free or you can purchase it for $5 but if you want biblically solid you know very clear and accessible just another voice in the justice conversation can't recommend Dr. Beissner's work enough. So thank you so much. That's
1: awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. We've appreciated this conversation for sure.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. All God right. bless you both.
0: Thank God you bless so much. you. All right. That was great. That was good. Um, that was good stuff. See, I knew you'd love it. Yes. Good <laughs> stuff. All right. We got a few questions here. Let's do this. Let's run
1: back up. We didn't yeah. um, get Emily's comment.
0: Yeah. Let's do Emily Russell on youtube uh so if you scroll up a little bit bob um would biblical judgment be executed upon individuals within the confines of a courtroom or i think Or. or do we execute justice in interpersonal conflicts and relationships what would that look like so Yeah. Okay. So I think your first question is, I think that the question behind the question is, can we legislate biblical morality? Mm -hmm. I think that's the question behind the question. So I would say that for much of our country's history, a lot of our laws have actually been uh, inspired by the biblical standard of justice. So why do we prosecute somebody for murder? Not Mm -hmm. every culture does that. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do we, well, we used to prosecute people for theft in our state. You can steal up to $1,000 worth of stuff and probably nothing will happen to you. Um, But, it, you know, why do we do that? Well, that's largely wedded to and inspired by the biblical standard. Now, you could argue that some of those things are changing. But like Dr. Beissner said, you know, I think his book recommendation looks very intriguing to me. Uh, this book about the book that changed the world. Like we aren't, I don't think we are consciously aware of how many of our laws and ways of being have been inspired by the Bible as, you know, inspiring us. We call them now common sense, Mm -hmm. or we call them right and wrong, but we don't understand how enmeshed they are with the biblical standard. Now, that being said, some standard of morality will always be in play always the question is is what is your standard Mm -hmm. that's the question you have to ask so there is no like neutral posture of of a law there's either there's either god's standard or there's human autonomy those are the options available you and i used to go back and forth about this all the time. I'm glad you came
1: over to the God standard (laughs) conversation eventually. It was rough, (laughs) y'all.
0: So that would be that. Um, Or do we execute justice just in, in interpersonal conflicts and relationships? So I think that, that if we're talking about us as individuals or in a church context, it's, it's a little bit different. Like, you know, we have in our country an idea of small claims court. If you feel like somebody has robbed you for up to $5,000, I think is the threshold, you can take them to small claims court. And it's a, it's a lot easier process. And so in that, it is individual versus individual. You have to go to court and make your case. Um, but in a church context, you know, that's the idea of governing that we get of what the elders are supposed to do. If somebody's engaging in adultery, or um, homosexuality, those, those laws no longer, uh, we don't have uh, civ- civil laws about those things in most states, but we might have to have a governing conversation with the elders of a local church about those sins mm-hmm. and how those things are dealt with. So hopefully that helps to answer Emily's question. I'll get
1: you. All right. Um, I wanted to address a comment by P. Sharelater. Yeah, says um, reparations is about responsibility and repair, not about paying off some kind of debt, and I think it, and I think it quite distinct from issues of forgiveness. I actually think that the conversation currently being had in culture is about um, the debt, about what Black people sold into this country and about this country actually owing something to Black people for the amount of of work and unpaid labor that went into building our country. Um, And then I do believe that this conversation, and I mean, you're free to disagree, but the way I see this conversation showing up is that it is now switching into a level of bitterness and unforgiveness, and we get... Um, comments or phrases like black forgiveness and blacks shouldn't be so quick to offer their forgiveness to white people because of issues like slavery or um, institutional racism and things that have happened in our history. Um, And then continuing on to the next comment, it says the amount of forgiveness that black Christians channeled toward white Christians over many decades with no repentance crippled, I guess, no repentance from white people crippled kingdom work fundamentally, I do actually think that there is, um, or there was this mindset of like, well, we haven't probably has been, we haven't seen this forgiveness from all white people. And so now, you know, this
0: repentance,
1: yeah, this, this repentance or, you know, however that repentance is defined, but I think that it's so poorly defined and it's, it's, In a way, I think a little bit unrealistic. Like, am I supposed to go to every white person and say, you know, hey, you need to repent now. That would be a way that James Cohn would probably say we should do some things. Or can we look at laws that have been overturned or, you know, institutions like um, Southern Baptists who have, you know, written out things and have made shifts and changes. And actually, I feel like apologized, so to speak, you know, for their participation in in, um, white segregation and racism. Yeah, I think
0: the question is, is like, how are we defining repentance? What would that look like tangibly? And then how much needs to happen before the forgiveness is granted that it's a very Tricky
3: well, situation. and I appreciated
1: what Dr. Beisner said is that sometimes you offer the forgiveness even before you receive the repentance. And so I think the conversation happening in culture right now is that we no longer need to move down this line of forgiveness. Forgiveness hasn't gotten us anywhere. I don't know that that's exactly true. What is the data that we haven't gotten anywhere? Um, but again, when we look at scripture, scripture has to be our plumb line. So whether it's taken us nowhere or whether it's taken us miles and miles down the road, the plumb line is still forgiveness. That's the standard when you, when we look in scripture, it is forgiveness. And so I think the, the conversation of reparations, repentance, forgiveness, and all that has led to many painful, hurtful places in the church. And it's really destructive because now you see people like Jamar Tisby who are saying, well, you haven't received forgiveness or they're not willing to, to shift and change according to your standard, not even the standard of scripture, but according to the standard of man that's been put forth. And so now we should leave loud.
0: It's, it's confusing too, because it's, it's, there's the cultural discussion that's happening about reparations that we're having as a country and then that's coming into the church and shaping our souls. And then we're reinterpreting parts of the scripture through that lens. And so it's it's really messy and convoluted. I do think it's important, and I'm just going to restate this again, that in order for two two parties to walk in peace, we need to have two things. We need to have two ingredients. If I'm going to make a cake, i got to have certain ingredients. If I'm going to walk in peace, I have to have forgiveness and repentance. That's how two sinful people can walk together in peace. If you have one party that withholds forgiveness and one party that's that's trying to repent, that's going to lead to despair. Because the person who's trying to repent doesn't get the benefit of the the forgiveness. If you have someone who's constantly extending forgiveness and there's no repentance that also makes it very hard to walk in peace and yet both are our obligation Mm
1: -hmm. i think the latter is what um the commenter is saying like sure you know you have people who are extending forgiveness but again i i think there's there's some things that are missing
0: well yeah and if you look in matthew 18 this is where i'm getting this is that if you look in Matthew 18 you have if if your brother offends you you go to them in private you try to win them over in other words you try to get them to repent and then but what's interesting about that whole like church discipline passage is it's sandwiched between teachings about forgiveness mm-hmm. so it's like almost the the message that Jesus wants us to know is that either way even if there's no repentance forgiveness is still necessary mm-hmm. And we are expected to be generous in our forgiveness because God has been generous toward us Mm -hmm. as we have needed repent or as we have needed forgiveness. We are obligated to forgive others. That's the obligation of the Christian. Now the non-Christian, we can have a different conversation, the cultural national discussion, Mm -hmm. different issue. But when we come into the church
1: it has to look different. We,
0: it has to look different. Mm-hmm. It has to be different. So Alicia
1: um, has a good comment. She or a good question. She says, "When or how will we know that we are reconciled?" And this is something that I talk about quite a bit. I think you talk about it too. Is you know, it depends on the position that you're standing from. If you're standing from a historically Christian present. Um, position we are reconciled, black and white and any other ethnic group. Like we are reconciled, according to Ephesians, according to to um, I feel like our hearts being reconciled to God in Second Corinthians, and then looking into Ephesians as family. The the and and there's there are more I feel like from Paul's writings that t- talk about our reconciliation. And coming into right relationship with one another as believers. Now, can I be reconciled with somebody who's in the world? No, that like that's the definition. Not in the, and, same, not way. In the same way. Not in the yes, realm. Not in realm. the ontological like. Yeah. yeah, that is that isn't going to work because it says that what what are you to have with the unbeliever? Like what unity are you to have with the unbeliever? But that's a a different conversation. If you are a historic Christian, we are reconciled. Now, if you uphold race over Christianity or race over scripture, or you might be in a more progressive stream. I don't know that you'll ever know when we get to unity. If you uphold if things If it's from like, a
0: cultural perspective, I don't know, because that it, takes us back to equity of condition. Yes. So, and man can't man
1: can't do it. That's yeah. the thing. This is why we see w- the things we see in culture, because it's too big for us. And then you get things thrown in like Black Liberation Theology or and James Cone, who would say that- basically we're never going to be reconciled. And the only way we would know that we were reconciled is if all the black people said, told all the white people, we are finally reconciled. You've done enough. You've met the criteria. I don't know that that's ever going to happen.
0: Yeah. Okay. um, Let us, that's a perfect transition to talking about the reconciled curriculum that we have coming out. We'll we'll only do it very soon. So people can um, get that. We have a small group curriculum, coming out. It's called Reconciled. You can pre-order it right now. So it's a six-week small group study. We want to encourage you to think about who uh, the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart, in your sphere of influence, to invite to doing the small group study with you. You can go on the website, see the title, see the, the lessons, and um, we'll be delivering it Very soon. We are getting very close. We did the final edits this week. Mm -hmm. We're getting really close. We are. It's crazy. It's amazing. Pretty exciting. So exciting. And you know what time it is? It's time for the Tweet of the Week. Hey!
1: The Tweet of the Week.
3: Whoa.
0: Okay. Probably uh, almost all of you have seen this, but for the two people that haven't, this video was making the rounds this week on social media. It's too good not to share. Yes. Here it is.
3: Daddy teaches you can be anything in this world that you want to be, right? Don't daddy teach you that? Yeah, and it doesn't matter if, if you're black or white or any color. doesn't matter if you're black, white, brown, yellow. Yellow. Right? Block. And and how we treat people is based on who yeah. they are and not and what they're color nice. they are. And if they're nice and smart. See? This is how this is how children think right here. Critical race theory wants to end that. Not with my children. It's not gonna happen. My baby's gonna know that no matter what she wants to be in life, all she has to do is work hard and she can become that. Work hard even though you don't know anyone, you can make friends. <laughs> Yeah, you can make friends, no matter what color they are. So we need to stop CRT, period, point blank. Children do not see skin color, man. They love everybody. If they're good people, they love them. We pray for people that are hurt. Daddy teaches you can- She's so
1: cute with her little missing teeth. <laughs> Ooh, the missing teeth stage. That's a special. <laughs> Only parents love kids when they miss <laughs> their teeth, boy. But she's so oh. cute.
0: That's so good. you over crying. Please. I know. I, I cry every time I watch it. It's just like you'd think I'd be over it by now. I've watched it like 10 times. But no, it's so good. It's like the truth of our whole ministry like in a one-minute video. There it is. It's so fantastic. That should be a commercial. Uh, somebody says the daughter's name is Royalty. I wonder if that's, a, if that's a true story. I don't know.
1: I haven't known Alyssa not to tell the truth. <laughs>
0: That's so cool. Yeah. I love that video. It's just so so much truth. But what I love about the dad is that he's he's teaching his daughter, and he says, that's not gonna happen. Not to here, ba- not here. today. Not today. My baby's mm-hmm. gonna know this. And that's the you know, the kind of the, the posture that, that we have to have of being bold yes. in, in teaching our children, being a bold voice of saying we don't do this in our house. Mm-hmm. We don't talk this way in our house. We don't live life from a you are no of one's fear. victim in yeah. our house. Yeah,
1: you will work hard.
0: Yeah, so so good. Yeah, what a great dad. Yeah, uh, I love this video. Yeah, grandparents must influence the next generation. So true. Thank you, Tanya, for saying that. Um, that's grandparents are not beyond the sphere of influence. I know my grandparents huge impact on on my faith Mm -hmm. and uh, my mom huge impact but when their voices you know of the same chorus coming together even more but yeah my grandparents my grandfather my grandmother their example definitely helped shape me so don't underestimate your your impact grandparents Mm -hmm. that that your your story is not over no so okay all right any last words
1: no, that's, I have a ton of thoughts, but, you know, it's time for us uh, to wrap
0: up. want to know what the thoughts are.
1: Well, I have thoughts about, like, the family, family participation. Tanya wrote in and, and um, said about, like, grandparents. I think, um, you know, what is the responsibility of fathers? I think the, the conversation that, that's been had in a lot of circles has been women-led, especially when we look at things like intersectionality. I have a lot of thoughts, and they just came all right now off this one video. We don't have time for all that. People are like, I got to go to sleep maybe i'll write about it i want to know the things there there's a lot there's just a lot of of you know a lot to be said like the whole conversation of not today you know i think everyone if you're a christian you have to put your foot down at some point and say not today like i'm not letting that come into my house today if you're white i'm not letting that conversation of white fragility come into my house today we are not the white oppressor i'm not whiteness isn't wicked i'm not letting that come in and and Um, spoil the next generation and if you are a minority you know I am not your victim I am not whatever you know critical race theory or any of the other social theories may be saying and then as Christians we need to be guarding the house guarding the body and saying no as Christians we don't allow this so I'm not going to allow something to come from my sister or my brother depending on you know whatever the framework is I don't know I just got a lot of thoughts they just all rose up at one time and now here they are. Sorry about that.
0: <laughs> well, we just got flagged on Facebook. Why? What'd I say? Because we, we showed that clip. I'm not really sure. Newsmax just sent us an alert that they're flagging our content. So we'll see what happens there. Eh, we'll see. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, yes, there's, there's a lot of thoughts. But we
1: are definitely we are over time. Yeah.
0: Thanks, everyone. We hope you found the show helpful, encouraging. And we just thank you for all your support. You could support us at Center for Biblical Unity backslash donate
1: Center for Biblical Unity dot com, dot com backslash donate. Yeah, continue to to support the work because it is a work. Um, but remember, as you go along, until we come back next week, that we are reconciled. We are family. We are brothers and sisters, and we belong to each other. Let that change the way that you interact with others this week. That's right. Bye,
0: y'all. See ya. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows.